0: Welcome to another episode of the Abnormal Psychologist Podcast. I am the abnormal psychologist, Dr. Colby Taylor. And today's episode is going to discuss the DSM-5 TR. So TR stands for text revision. Unfortunately, it doesn't stand for T-Rex. I was a huge dinosaur nerd as a kid. Um, Surprise, surprise. And I'm hoping my own kids become dinosaur nerds. Uh, Rowan, my 10-month-old, I actually just put him down for a nap in a dinosaur onesie. So hopefully I'm getting them started on the right track. But dinosaurs aren't the focus of today's podcast. The focus of today's podcast is the brand new DSM-5 text revision. Um, I say brand new, I'm recording this episode on April 5th, 2022, and the DSM-5 TR dropped on March 18th. March 18th was the uh, publication date. So you'll notice that it's the DSM-5 TR, and in my fifth episode of season one, I dedicated that entirely to the DSM-5. And in that first episode, I mentioned that there were some theories that because we went with the Arabic numeral five instead of the Roman numeral V with the DSM-5, that when we got an update to the DSM, we might have some sort of trendy software-like update, sort of like Apple does with iOS, where it could be DSM-5.1 or DSM-5.2 when we have updates. And the fact that this came out as the DSM-5 tr sort of put that theory to bed, at least for now. So no decimal points, just DSM-5 TR right now. Um, It is a little bit longer than the OG DSM-5. The OG DSM-5 was 991 pages, and this is about 150 pages longer. It's uh, 1,142 pages long. So it is a little bulkier than the DSM-5. Um, we went away from sort of the purple color, purple, dark blue color of the DSM-5. Um, the DSM-5 TR is sort of blue green in color, uh, which is kind of neat. It is sort of expensive. Uh, it's $220 for the hardcover version. So I'll be honest with you. I have not ordered my version yet. I'm saving up for it. Um, uh, you're more than welcome to donate to my Patreon, um, and help me out in buying the DSM-5 TR. Uh, so it is a little bit expensive, 220 for the hardcover version, 170 if we're going to go um, softcover paperback, uh, and 136 for the ebook. And you get a 20% discount if you're an APA member on those prices. This revision was expected. The DSM-5 was published nine years ago in 2013. Um, so we're talking a nine-year gap. Uh, if we look back to the DSM-4, it was published in 1994, and then the text revision came six years later in 2000. So we had six-year wait between the DSM-IV and the text revision, nine-year wait between the DSM-5 and the text revision. So, so no real surprises there. And the DSM-5 TR has more minor changes than substantive changes. Uh, there's research that's been added in, research that's happened over the past nine years, um, and that's probably why it's a little bit longer. Uh, they've tweaked some prevalence data and such because new uh, prevalence data. Um, Studies have come out in the past nine years. Uh, There were four review groups that were involved in creating the text revision. The four review groups were culture, sex and gender, suicide, and forensic. And each of these four review review groups uh, reviewed everything in the DSM-5 TR. And that suicide one is important because now we have coding options for suicidal behavior and non-suicidal self-injury. This is one of the more substantive changes in the DSM-5. Um, these coding options fall under other conditions that may be a focus of clinical attention. Um, And this is also sort of a plug for Season 2, Episode 8, where I discuss self-injury, self-harm, and self-mutilation. Those four review groups are important because they reflect an emphasis, really an increased emphasis, on equity and inclusion. And throughout the text revision, uh, there's been some changes in language to make language more non-stigmatizing. Uh, Also, throughout the DSM-5, there's increased attention to how racism and discrimination impact mental health. I mentioned there's some tweaks to prevalence data. And when we report prevalence data, a lot of times we report it based on race um, and ethnicity. And now the DSM-5, instead of using the term race or racial, is using the term ethno-racial. So an example of this, when we're using U.S. Census Bureau categories, we have the category of Hispanic. Hispanic and Hispanic is technically not a race. Uh, It's a linguistic group. So the term ethnoracial is actually way more appropriate, way more correct than using the term race or racial. The text revision has also eliminated some words. They've stricken some words from the entirety of the DSM 5TR. No more Caucasian that's been replaced by white throughout the text revision, and no more term minority or non-white. Those have been taken away. We're also not going to see the Latino slash Latina label. Instead, uh, the DSM-5 has gone with Latin X. And they're using the term racialized instead of the terms race or racial. Um, when they are tar- using the terms uh, race or racial, again, ethno-racial is preferred when we're talking about prevalence. But in the event that they use the term race or racial, um, they've substituted in racialized. So you'll see racialized uh, to reflect that race is a systematically imposed term and that's why we'll see racialized throughout Uh, but again ethno racial is sort of taken over in the prevalence statistics when we're talking about race and uh, racial stuff so more substantive changes and i'm sort of doing this podcast by the most substantive changes at least in my opinion to the text revision down to the more minuscule minor edits Uh, we do have a new diagnosis Uh, The new diagnosis in the DSM-5 TR is prolonged grief disorder, which you'll see abbreviated PGD. And if you follow sort of psychiatric news at all, this is not really a surprise. They announced sort of at the end of 2021 that this was coming down the pipe and the the text revision. So prolonged grief disorder um, is interesting because we don't want to overdiagnose normal grieving but we also wanna provide a bridge to services for people who are experiencing abnormal grief. So with PGD, with Prolonged Grief Disorder, uh, a person has died within six months for children and adolescents, and then within a year, within 12 months for adults. And these are sort of abnormal grieving behaviors uh, that occur nearly every day for at least a month. And some abnormal grieving behaviors would be like intense loneliness, detachment, feeling like a part of yourself has died which we could consider identity disruption. Um, You might have some disbelief about death. So sort of some denial if we're talking about the Kubler-Ross model of death um, and bereavement. Um, Emotional numbness, avoidance of reminders of the deceased, um, difficulty reintegrating with your life. So like planning for your future, getting back into sort of a normal routine. You have difficulty with that. Um, You might feel like life is empty or meaningless And sort of that, the last two, right? The difficulty planning for the future, getting back into routines, and feeling your life is meaningless sort of goes along with anhedonia that we talk about with major depression. So, prolonged grief disorder is a new diagnosis. Uh, We also have one sort of new diagnosis, and that's olfactory reference syndrome. Olfactory reference syndrome was a cultural concept of distress. I think I mentioned these in season one, episode 26. That would be the season finale um, of episode one. Gosh, I'm just throwing episode plugs all through here. So it was a cultural concept of distress in the DSM-5, which again is a section towards the back of the DSM-5. It was considered uh, solely a Japanese syndrome. uh, And the Japanese uh, name for this, and I'm probably going to butcher this, I apologize, is Jikoshu Kyofu. But since the DSM-5 was published, we have evidence that um, olfactory reference syndrome is way more global than we thought. It's not just confined to Japan. And so this has been included in the text revision as an example of other specified OCRD, so other specified obsessive compulsive and related disorder. And olfactory reference syndrome basically is obsessive anxiety that you're putting off a foul odor that's offensive to others. So prolonged grief disorder is new. Olfactory reference syndrome is n- sort of new uh, in that we already had the diagnostic category for other OCRD, and now this is just sort of an explicit example of one of those. I guess another sort of newish diagnosis is unspecified mood disorder. Unspecified mood disorder was in the DSM-IV text revision, and I didn't even realize that it was removed when the dsm 5 was published. It was removed inadvertently. And so with the text revision, they've thrown unspecified mood disorder back into the mix. So we've gotten it back. So I guess technically it's sort of a new diagnosis. I don't know. Again, I didn't even really recognize it was gone. Uh, There's also been, in addition to those sort of new changes, emphasis on equity and inclusion um, uh, and the impact of discrimination and racism uh, on mental health Uh, We have changes to around 70 existing diagnoses. So I can't walk through all of them in this episode, but I'll walk through some of them with you. And one of the things I noticed in looking at changes is that there's a lot of name stuff. And in creating this episode, I sort of divided these name changes into flip-flops and name drops, flip-flops and name drops. I don't know why I just wanted to start singing or rapping bad and bougie, drop-top, raindrop, flip-flop, name drop. Okay, I'll stop. Uh, but I will start with talking about flip-flops. So intellectual disability has become intellectual developmental disorder. Uh, so that's IDD now. ID has become IDD, intellectual developmental disorder. And this is to align with ICD11 language, International classification of diseases 11 language. You can still use ID. Um, intellectual disability is included in parentheses after intellectual developmental disorder. Uh, And in the DSM-5, it was the exact opposite. We had intellectual disability, and then in parentheses, we had intellectual developmental disorder. So this is a parentheses flip-flop. ID has gone from uh, outside of the parentheses to inside of the parentheses. We've just sort of switched. One's parenthetical now. Uh, Intellectual disability is parenthetical now. Um, Intellectual developmental disorder was parenthetical in the previous version. That's why I call it a flip-flop. We have another parentheses flip-flop. And that's involving functional neurological uh, disorder and conversion disorder. So conversion disorder used to be the name of this and functional neurological symptom disorder was in parentheses. Now we flip-flop that to where conversion disorder is the alternative term that's in parentheses. So those are the flip-flops. Now let's get to the name drops. So with social anxiety... Um, The alternative parenthetical term for social anxiety in the DSM-5 was social phobia. Now we've dropped that name. We no longer have the social phobia in parentheses. It's a name drop. Another name drop. With persistent depressive disorder, dysthymia is gone. Dysthymia used to be sort of a parenthetical term for persistent depressive disorder. And the reasoning behind this was to distance itself from like the DSM-4 dysthymic disorder. DSM-4 dysthymic disorder was like less severe than major depression. And with this sort of name drop, now that we don't have dysthymia anymore as an alternative term, this is supposed to reflect that persistent depressive disorder is due more to duration. Um, The differentiation between that and major depressive disorder is more one of duration than one of severity. So those are flip-flops and name drops. Um, Some other changes. uh, Also regarding intellectual developmental disorder or parenthetically, intellectual disability. Uh, In the diagnostic criteria, the phrase to meet diagnostic criteria for intellectual disability, the deficits in adaptive functioning must be directly related to the intellectual impairments described in criteria A. That that sentence that I just read has been eliminated. Um, Some people apparently interpreted this as like a fourth diagnostic criteria for ID or IDD, when in fact, there are only three diagnostic criteria. Um, I never really thought this was an issue since the three criteria were labeled A, B, C. Uh, there was no D, so I never really thought there was a fourth one. Uh, the, the three criteria, if you're, if you're curious. And again, another episode plug. Season one, episode 16 is on developmental disorders. Um, the three diagnostic criteria are deficits in intellectual function, deficits in adaptive function, and these have to be tied to developmental period. So those are the three. So we have some changes with autism spectrum disorder too. Another episode plug, season one, episode 25, I talk about autism spectrum disorder. In the second season of this podcast, I do an episode specifically focused on high-functioning autism spectrum disorder or Asperger's. I apologize if you just heard a shriek in the background. It's my daughter Emerson playing. Um, With autism spectrum disorder in the text revision, the word all has been added to criteria A. Criteria A, you might remember, involves social communication and social interaction. Um, there's three symptoms that you have to meet for criteria A, and this clarifies that you have to meet all three of them. Um, again, I never really thought this was an issue. I think it was just assumed that you had to meet all of them. Uh, I remember actually talking to some of my colleagues three, four years ago in autism evals. I was like, yeah, I, I mean, you need to meet all three of them. Uh, I, I never really thought this was an issue, but now this definitely clarifies that, that you have to have all three of criteria A. Uh, we also have some wording changes regarding major depressive disorder, bipolar one, and bipolar two, And these are sort of related to major depressive episodes or hypomanic episodes or manic episodes. So let's walk through this because it can be a little bit confusing. Uh, with major depressive disorder, criteria D in the DSM-5 had the wording that The occurrence of the major depressive episode is not better explained by schizoaffective disorder and then some other psychotic disorders. Well, schizoaffective disorder by definition is schizophrenia and a mood disorder. And some major depressive episodes might not be completely accounted for by diagnosis of schizoaffective disorders, Um, while other schizoaffective diagnoses might be completely accounted for by either the active or residual parts of a schizoaffective disorder. Um, sort of a psychotic break. And so the, the text revision clarifies that if you meet the diagnostic criteria for major depressive disorder, you can get the diagnosis of schizoaffective affective disorder also if a major depressive episode seems independent of the schizoaffective or psychotic disorder. And sort of aligning with this, the language from major depressive disorder has changed from is not better explained by to Superimposed on these psychotic disorders. Since really, there should be no reason that a major depressive episode is explained by a psychotic disorder, um, schizoaffective disorder, again, notwithstanding. So, if you look at these updates and you compare them to DSM 4 language, it's really sort of going back to DSM 4 language. We also see the same sort of updates with hypomanic episodes with bipolar 2 and manic episodes with bipolar 1. Um, the hypomanic or manic episode has to be independent of schizoaffective disorder. It can't be accounted for completely by the presence of schizoaffective disorder in order to also meet the diagnostic criteria for bipolar 2 or bipolar 1. And we've taken away the language that hypomanic or manic episodes might be better explained by another psychotic disorder since hypomanic and manic episodes are not in the definition of any psychotic disorder other than schizoaffective disorder. So, again, sort of parallel changes that we have with major depressive disorder with bipolar one and bipolar two. Also, with bipolar disorders, we have had some changes in the three levels of severity related to bipolar one. Uh, I used to sort of chuckle when I read the severity description for mild severity of bipolar one. And I'm not sure if I mentioned this in my bipolar episode, but the mild severity description read that few, if any, symptoms in excess of those required to meet the diagnostic criteria are present. The intensity of the symptoms is distressing but manageable, and the symptoms result in minor impairment in social or occupational functioning. So by definition, though, a manic episode is urgent. Um, it's more than mildly impairing. Uh, it probably requires acute psychiatric hospitalization. So how can you really reconcile that mild description with the definition of a manic episode? You really can't. So they've changed the language um, In the text revision to again reflect that all manic episodes uh, are urgent but I guess some are milder than others. Uh, There's been some changes to the diagnosis of gender dysphoria and this is more in in wording. So in the diagnostic criteria in the DSM-5 we had the term desired gender and that's been changed to experienced gender. Uh, We also had the terms natal male and natal female And these have been changed to individual assigned male or female at birth. Uh, We also had the term cross-sex medical procedure, and this has been changed to gender-affirming medical procedure. Uh, And along with that, we had cross-sex hormone treatment that's been changed to gender-affirming hormone treatment. Uh, So those are the major changes in the DSM-5 text revision. Again, there's more than 70 sort of tweaks to existing diagnoses. I couldn't walk through them all here. But I think this is a pretty good sort of cheat sheet, cliff notes version of changes in the text revision. Um, let's visit the mailbag. Again, uh, if you have episode requests, um, hate mail, compliments, whatever, feel free to email them to me at c t a y l o 41 at cbu.edu with the subject line mailbag. And I'll try to either make it an episode or address your comment or concern um, in one of my episodes. So the mailbag this week says, Dear Dr. Taylor, my name is Ashlyn, and I listen to the Abnormal Psychologist podcast on Spotify. Um, You have amazing content, and I always learn something new with each episode. I'm currently working in the field of ABA and pursuing the route to become a board-certified behavioral analyst, so a BCBA. In my experience, it is a controversial therapy approach that needs more awareness, as it is recently being introduced to many other areas of treatment would you be able and or willing to do an episode on ABA? Um, Thank you for all the content you provide. And Ashlyn, I would absolutely be able and willing to do an episode on ABA. Um, I've done training in ABA myself. Um, Some of my students have gone on to become BCBAs. It's a super fast-growing field. Um, There's a shortage of BCBAs. There's a lot that are needed. Uh, So if you're interested in becoming a board-certified behavior analysis Uh, or analyst, sorry, board-certified behavior analyst. Um, uh, The job prospects are really, really good. So I'll try to do that in a future episode. I think in my next episode, I'll cover another mailbag request, which was on what to do if you receive uh, multiple diagnoses that don't really jive with one another. Um, So uh, we'll get at sort of like diagnostic validity and maybe some problems with that. Maybe you see a clinician and one diagnoses you with bipolar 1, another diagnoses you with borderline personality disorder and which one is like the real slim shady or whatever. So I can cover that in the next episode. And then maybe I'll start doing my prep and homework for doing an ABA episode. Again, send me some mailbag requests. I'm happy to, uh, happy to address them because it's hard to sort of brainstorm uh, what this new content. um, It's hard to come up with new content, I guess for these episodes. Uh, Anyways, I think I am out of content for this episode. Until the next one, take care and stay well.